Thank you for listening in today to our Friday broadcast of Abiding in the Word with Dave Love, Senior Pastor of Calvary Castle Rock. Today, we'll continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel. So let's join Pastor Dave now. Soon your trials will be over. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 14. We left the Philistines there at Micmash. That's a cool name right there, Micmash. It's about 20 miles from Gibeah. Uh, This is where Saul had gathered about 3,000 men, uh, but these men began to flee when they saw all the Philistines coming, Um, this great army gathering in Michmash, and uh, it's interesting because when we saw Saul actually go out in the power of the Lord in in, uh, chapter 12, 330,000 men uh, God laid on their hearts to come out as well um, when God's in it. And here he's doing it by the flesh, and he has 3,000 with him, and then he couldn't even keep them together, and now only 600 remain with him as they were waiting for uh, Samuel to show up there in Gibeah. Um, And so, as we last left Saul in chapter 13, he had just failed the test of waiting upon the Lord. He offered sacrifice when he was supposed to wait for Samuel to come. Samuel was supposed to to offer the sacrifice, and so... uh, he begins to make excuses when Samuel finally does show up. And it says in verse 11 of 1 Samuel 13, just to back up a bit, it says, And Samuel said, What have you done? And Samuel said, When I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. And so he begins to make an excuse, Hey, you were late. Now, it's interesting. Remember what Samuel says to Saul. What have you done? Later on in chapter 14, we're going to see Saul say that to his son, uh, Jonathan. Whereas you have the prophet speaking to the king, speaking with the voice of God, what have you done? That was God speaking to uh, Saul. What have you done? And then at the end of chapter 14, we actually see uh, uh, Saul kind of in the place of a prophet saying the exact same thing to um, Jonathan, yet he had no business saying that. He had no business being the mouthpiece of God there, and we'll see that here in a moment. So his first excuse is blaming, he, he, uh, Saul says, uh, I saw the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the day. So actually, the first excuse is that he's blaming the soldiers, and the second excuse is that he blames uh, Samuel for not being there on the appointed time. But what we actually see happening to Saul here is that he's walking by sight, not by faith. We are called to walk by faith, not by sight. We are called to do what we know the Word of God says to do. That is walking by faith. In Romans chapter 14, verse 23, it says, For whatever is not from faith is sin. And so we are going to be uh, bombarded all the time with what the world says that we should do in the way of being afraid or whatever but God says, do not be afraid, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We are constantly going to be seeing things that are contrary to the word of God, and Satan wants us to react by what we see, not by what we know. And when we act out by what we know, that is faith. That is faith. And so we begin to see Saul change here, where he begins to be a man of his passions, not a man uh, who is going to wait on the Lord and listen to what God says above me on how he feels. 
And so we now begin to see Saul's character kind of decay a bit. Um, he first, you know, he first deceives uh, Samuel by going out there as if everything's okay, and he greets him out there like he's done nothing wrong. Uh, and we see Saul's character further decay when he does not take ownership of his wrongdoing. So, um, so here in verse 12, it says, uh, Then I said, The Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled, and I offered burnt offering. And I mentioned last week, why didn't you feel compelled? Why didn't you force yourself? The word compelled means I forced myself to make this offering. Well, why didn't you force yourself to obey and not make the offering? That would be a better way to compel yourself. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be a commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose, went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. So this is where we left off the last time, verse 16. It says, Saul, Jonathan his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road to uh, uh, Ophrah, to the land of Shul. Another company turned to the road of Beth Haran, and another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboam toward the wilderness. And so the Philistines, now that they're camped in Michmash in such a large number, they send out raiders. They send out people um, uh, from their camp, from their army, and they are there to, uh, um, to plunder the countryside, to get as much food and provisions they can, and bring it back to the army that's camped there at Michmash. And so this is what these guys are doing. And so in verse 19 it says, Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. Um, you know, uh, they've been liberated through Samuel. And yet they didn't think it necessary to raise up a, a blacksmith during that time. For whatever reason, they kept still going down to the Philistines in order to get their, you know, their, uh, uh, just, uh, their axes and things like that sharpened. But there's never a blacksmith that's been raised up during this whole time. And so because of that, it says, But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattocks, his axe, his sickle. And the charge for sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, the axes to set the points of the goads. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and Jonathan his son. So for whatever reason, Saul and Jonathan do have um, armaments. They do have a sword or a spear and a shield and things like that. Um, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Now, I find this interesting. For one, so the rest of the Israelites that Saul has with him don't have spears and swords. So they probably have slings. Uh, maybe they have some uh, just a very crude bow and arrow. Um, they have clubs, probably. Uh, maybe they brought out some of their axes and some of the things that they farming implements um, in order to go to war with. Um, and I find this interesting as well, is that three years earlier, they went to battle against the Amorites and they, they wiped them out. 
So obviously some must have taken their swords and their spears and things like that. So what's going on here? You know what this tells me? This tells me that of the 3,000 men, remember 330,000 men went out against the Amorites. So of those 330,000 men, they probably plundered those goods. But what that tells me is that then the 3,000 that Saul has raised up weren't one of those that went out and obviously plundered these kinds of goods. Or they were, and they have left, and that the 600 that remained didn't have those swords or spears and things like that. And so, because uh, as I'm going through there, I'm going, obviously, when you plunder another nation, when you go to war, you're going to steal their stuff. You're going to have their knives. You're going to have their shields. You're going to have all that stuff. But let's say that there was, you know, however many Amorites that there were at that time, 30,000 or so, you know what? There are 330,000 men that went out against them. And so that's a lot of men that after they plundered them wouldn't have had a sword or a spear or anything like that. And so the ones who obviously took those things didn't go out to war with Saul on this occasion. And definitely the 600 that remained didn't have that. They didn't have that. And, and for whatever reason, the last three years, Saul did not see it necessary at that point to be making weapons to raise up a blacksmith during that time. I think John actually has something interesting to say about that, and we'll wait for that afterwards. No pressure, John. And so, that's what's so great about the question and answer time afterwards. We get to hear what God has put on your heart. Um, and so... I believe what the Lord is doing at this point is once again just setting the stage in order to make his name great. He's going to do something. We're going to see here, he's the one that wins the battle here. Saul and the rest of his men, when they go out after him, is just there to do the cleanup work, but, but God's the one that won this battle. Um, and he does it for the reason that we mentioned in 1 Samuel twelve twenty two, where it says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. God's always in things to make his name great. And so, they're outnumbered badly, and so here uh, we start chapter 14, verse 1. The only way the Israelites are ever going to win is to trust God in everything, and God's bringing them to that place where they have to do that. It says, Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Now, every officer would have an armor bearer. Every officer will have this assistant known as the armor bearer, and it would help the officer in fighting, administration of the army. They would often simply carry the armor and the weapons of the officer, uh, but they were tenacious fighters themselves. And so an armor bearer in ancient times had to be unusually brave and loyal since the lives of their masters often depended on them. And we see this with this armor bearer. Jonathan says, let's go over. Who knows if God will bless by many or by few? And what does the guy say? All right, let's do it. Wow. You know, it takes tremendous faith to have said that, but it takes tremendous faith also to say, okay, you know, it's not as though the armor bearer lacked any faith or or Jonathan had more faith in him. It took just as much faith to say, okay, I'll go on this suicide mission with you, you know? And so he has tremendous amount of faith here. I don't know what Jonathan was thinking. Uh, They're vastly outnumbered. Uh, they, the, the, um, he, maybe, you know, maybe he's thinking of, maybe he's thinking of, uh, of their own history. Maybe he's thinking about Samson. 
Maybe he's thinking about having, how Samson had the jawbone of a donkey and was able to kill a thousand people. You know, just with that, with that one uh, um, jawbone uh, of a donkey. Maybe he's thinking about Shagmar who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goat, which is really just a big pointy stick. Maybe he's thinking about these men of faith that have stepped out and have been able to decimate their enemy because the Spirit of God was with them. Maybe he's thinking about those kind of things. You know, in Leviticus 26, 7, God promised Moses, he says, you will chase your enemies and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred. A hundred of you shall put 10,000 to to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. Perhaps that's what Jonathan's thinking. He's gone, the Lord is with me. And he's going to look favorably upon this. And so it says in verse 2, And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree which is in Migron. And the people with him were about 600 men. Now Migron uh, means precipice, so it means high up on a cliff, uh, on the outskirts of Gibeah. And so um, uh, the area of Gibeah is in the territory of Benjamin. In Judges chapter 20, When the tribe of Benjamin fell into gross sin and the rest of Israel came against them, we are told that the tribe of Benjamin went and fled to a place called the Rock of Rimmon. There are caves there, and the tribe of Benjamin hid in it for months. And many scholars believe that Migron is uh, the same place as Rimmon. And so this is a place that that they would have gone to hide. And so it kind of just shows Saul hiding at this place. He's in a precipice, he's high up on a cliff, maybe tucked into some caves there where it would be very difficult to try and get them out. And so he's hiding in that same place that his ancestors hid before uh, there with the tribe of the Philistines. And so, um, and not to mention, it's a very, very good defensible position there if the Philistines do come to attack them there. Uh, So we see here Saul seems to be weak in his own flesh of trying to gather together an army. That doesn't seem to be working out for him. And so um, we see what he does next here in verse 3. He summons a priest to himself. And it says here in verse 3, Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, but the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. It almost seems unnecessary that Ichabod would even be mentioned here. It could have just easily read, Ehab, the son of Ahitub, uh, the priest of the Lord, came to, to, uh, to Saul here. But it mentions this lineage here that goes to Ichabod and draws it all the way to Phinehas, the son of Eli, which is no longer an anointed line of God. And Ichabod means the glory has departed. It almost seems like God wants to associate the meaning of Ichabod's name and the lineage there where where Saul is at spiritually at this point. Because my question is, why isn't he calling upon Samuel? You know, Samuel's still around. Yeah, he blew it, but he can still be calling upon Samuel. What should I do next? Okay, I blew it. What should I do next? But he doesn't. He circumvents that one person that is going to tell him straight up what God wants him to do. 
He circumvents that one person that is a sane voice in his life. But instead, he takes a priest from the rejected line of Eli. And that's not a good thing. So he sends for this priest, and he also the ark. Um, We have seen Saul uh, offer sacrifice once before, and it didn't turn out well last week. Uh, It seems like he has learned that lesson. Um, However, he... He falls in error again when he sends for this priest from the line of Eli, where the glory has departed, and he seems to, again, want to circumvent anything that Samuel wants to say to him. Samuel, the Lord's prophet, is not in his presence, so he thinks he can make up from him by going to another priest. And this priest will not rebuke Saul. He will not lead Saul according to God's will. Instead, he will do exactly what Saul tells him to do. This guy is a yes man. There are many ministers that like to surround themselves with yes men. There's a lot of people that want to surround themselves with yes men. They don't want to be be accountable. They don't want someone to challenge possibly what they believe that the Lord is doing. I got to tell you, I thrive in that arena. I love that. I want to be challenged. That's a good point. Wow, I never thought of that. I want to know what is possibly the missteps of going in this direction. I want to know that. I don't want people to say, yeah, 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 go do that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. Oh, yeah. I don't want to do that as I go off a cliff. I want someone to say, have you thought about this? You know, I hear your heart, Dave, but this has come to my mind. You know, God has put this on my heart as well. Great, I want to hear it, you know. Um... And, and it's never a good thing to surround yourself with a bunch of rah-rah people. It's not. Now, granted, it's a pain in the butt when you have people challenge you at every turn of the corner. But honestly, I'd rather have that than a bunch of yes-men around me, you know. And so this is who he surrounds himself with, and, and he's going to uh, be led astray again. Um, so he brings the ark in. Um, Again, you'd think he would have learned that bringing the ark in isn't going to give him any special favors with God. They'd already lost it to the Philistines year before, years before. And so, again, it's almost like he's going, I've got to have a priest of God with me, and I've got to have the ark with me. And again, it's almost like a good luck charm, as opposed to having a personal relationship with God himself. We're going to see in chapter 15 how often that Saul himself says, pray to your God, pleading to Samuel. And my question, I just want to yell out in the scriptures and just go, why isn't he your God? What do you mean? At least say, pray to my God for me. At least take ownership that he's your God, but he doesn't do that. Pray to your God that he won't. And it's like, why isn't he your God? And so even here, it's like, uh, he's not really my God. He's not really on my side. So I'll get guys that, that maybe uh, God's favorable with and, and they'll be as opposed to seeking God himself. And going to the direct person that does have a direct line with God, Samuel. My goodness, why you don't make use of him every single day of your life while he's still here on earth, I have no idea. No idea. And so it says in in verse 4, it says, Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side, 
and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sine. Now, I'm going to let this kind of sit here for a while, but uh, last time that uh, I taught through this about a year ago, it was on a Wednesday night, and again, we had just like we do here where people get to, uh, you know, um, we ask questions and answers and maybe God will speak to you. And one of the things that I um, asked, I said, you know what, the, the word bozes means shining and the word senez means thorn. And I, I don't know exactly what that means, but to think about it, and at the end of the Bible study, I asked, and someone who is here today as well is the one that says, you know what, I, I see shining and thorn and the thorn reminds me of a bramble bush, and it reminds me of the burning bush, which is also on fire, hence shiny and thorn. And he goes, I see Jesus in that. I go, man, that is really good. I really like that. That's really cool. So I went a little bit further with this as well, because I believe that we're, we're on to something here, that you have two um, rocks on either side, both of them jagged, but one is called shining, but it also means empty. It also means emptiness. And John and I were talking about this before the study, and it also means emptiness. I'm going, how can something be shiny and empty at the same time? Don't get that at all, you know? Don't get that at all, shiny, empty. But I do know that sine is, um, is the same word for the burning bush, the bush that is burning in Exodus chapter 3, if you were to look that up. The word bush there is the same word here, sine. And that bush, um, according to... Um, in the Hebrew, speaks of a bramble bush or a thorn bush. So it is a thorn bush is what we have here um, in, in Exodus chapter 3. And so here we have kind of like that jagged rock that reminds you of a thorn of, uh, of some kind. And then the other one is shining and it's empty at the same time. Well, we know that the thorn itself it speaks of the curse. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 18 Thorns and thistles will, be, uh, um, will come from the earth now. And so man has to work the earth. And so it speaks of the curse. We know that Jesus Christ had what upon his head? A crown of thorns. Thus taking the sin, that curse, upon himself while he was there on the cross. And then we also know that Bozes, the other one, speaks of shiny or empty. Well, we know in Revelation 1.16, it says, speaking of Jesus, it says, He had in his right hand seven stars out of the mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. But when I realized, but it's empty, also it speaks of emptiness, what could that possibly mean? And then the first thing that came to me was, well, what makes Jesus so shiny? What did he have to go through? For? There's an empty tomb. And the tomb was empty, and all of a sudden they see Jesus, and he's in his glorified form. And, and then I, I, I looked a little bit further. It's, as narrow is the gate, difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And you're going to see Jonathan, his armor bearer, crawl up this precipice and down this rock down this way and then up again and down in order to attack the garrison. And, and you see somebody who, who is doing something very, very difficult, going through a very narrow passage of how to get to that garrison. 
And that's pretty much the Christian walk, if you ask me. You're walking by faith. It's going to be very difficult, but that's the only thing that's going to lead to victory. As we're going to see happens with Jonathan and his armor bearer. Let nothing ever separate us. That wraps up this Friday edition of Abiding in the Word with Pastor Dave Love. Join us again on Monday as we continue our study in 1 Samuel. If you live in the area of Castle Rock and are looking for a church to call home, be sure to come by and visit with us. We meet Saturdays at 5 p.m. and our Sunday service times are at 9 and 11 a.m. A combined junior and senior high class meets at 5 p.m. on Saturday evenings, On Sunday mornings, high school meets during the 9 a.m. service and the junior high meets at the 11 a.m. service. Our Young Adults Ministry, Arise, meets every Friday at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Castle Rock. Child care is offered for all of our weekend services. Calvary Castle Rock is located right off of I-25 and East Wolfensburger Road, directly behind Jack in the Box and the Shell Gas Station. For more information about us or this radio ministry, please visit our website at calvarycr.com or download our free mobile app from the Apple App Store or Google Play. You can also call the church office at 303-663-2514. Thank you again for joining us today. Until our next time together, we want to encourage you to always be abiding in the Word of God. Oh,